Good evening, church. Today's scripture reading is taken from 2 Samuel 6, verses 1 to 11. 2 Samuel 6, verses 1 to 11. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abin-Adab, which was on the hill. And Azar and Ahio, the sons of Abin-Adab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Azar put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Azar. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken against Azar. And that place is called Paris Azar to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. This is the word of the Lord. To God. Thank you, Charlotte, for reading for us the word this evening. And once again, a very good evening to each and every one of you, especially for those of us who may be new visitors in our midst. And truly, we have a few visitors today. Um, Kevin and Faye, a good friend of mine, also a good friend of Ken. And also, I hope I pronounced your name correctly, Bay Jo. It's correct? Yes? All right. I think she's Carl's friend. Shall I put your hands to just welcome them? And so with that, can I invite you to just bow our heads as we commit this time to the Lord in prayer. And so, Father, we give you thanks once again for your presence with us. Thank you, Lord, for your word that is always so freely available to each and every one. <clears throat> we pray now, Lord, as we receive them, may our ears be receptive to what you have to tell us. May our minds be attentive to your truth and our hearts be obedient to what you want us to do. So as we give you this time, may your Holy Spirit guide us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> now, not sure if you all recall back in the year 2015, on the 5th of June, when the devastating news broke out of an earthquake measuring a magnitude of 6.0, which struck the state of Sabah. Now, it was said that this was the strongest earthquake ever to affect our neighbor Malaysia since 1976. And as a result of this catastrophe, it was reported that 18 people perished 
on Mount Kinabalu, of whom 10 were Singaporean students and teachers from Tanjong Katong Primary School. It was also further reported that another 137 odd tourists climbing up the mountain were stranded but subsequently rescued. Remember this incident? Yeah, I think many of you do remember that, yeah? And I'm sure many of you also were shell-shocked by this unfortunate event when it was broadcasted, and which I believe perhaps prompted some of us to ask this question, God, why? Why are you so cruel? Why did God allow so many young lives to be taken away? Why, why, why? This word often rings out when something bad happens to us. Why, God, did you allow Russia to invade Ukraine? You know, truth be told, you and I, we are all guilty of this. I am guilty as well. You see, when Gerald was born, and you know Gerald, he's diagnosed with Down syndrome. When he was born, Cassandra and I, we asked this very same question. Why, God? Why did you choose to bless us with a special need boy? And in fact, you find that we are in good company. For King David himself, you find that in many of his Psalms, he often expressed to God in this manner. And today, as we continue on in our study, in the character of David, and as we look specifically at 2 Samuel chapter 6, we will be focusing on this interesting incident of a man named Uzzah and question, why did he have to die? And the context behind this fascinating story, as we are told, was soon after David had took over the throne. He was now known as the king of Israel. And it was this also after he had a crushing victory over Israel's nemesis, the Philistine. And so part of this massive celebration, the king wanted to bring the ark of the Lord back to his new capital, Jerusalem. And thus for this very purpose, a transport team was organized, of which Uzzah happened to be part of. Now his job was simply to ensure that the ark of the Lord was returned safely to the place of worship. It was to be a happy occasion, a joyous event. Yet, as we have heard from scriptures, something quite unexpected happened. The Lord apparently struck down Uzzah and he died right there on the spot. Now, if you're like me for years, I've been trying to make sense of the Lord's action and rationale. Why would God do such a thing? And for some of us, perhaps, it's difficult to comprehend such a harsh and unfair act on Uzzah by God. After all, don't we come to church? As we gather here, we sing songs about God. We sing of how He's gracious, how our God is compassionate. Isn't our God slow to anger? He's rich in abundance in love for His people as Scripture tells us. And to others, we may even perhaps react in the way that David did initially, as recorded here in verse 8, that when he heard that God had struck down Uzzah, he was angry. But truth to the matter is this. Sometimes we cannot come to terms with what the Almighty God is doing. After all, we must 
be reminded in the words of Isaiah 55 verse 8 that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Neither His ways are our ways. But thankfully, in regard to what happened here in this account, we find that the answer is revealed to us within the text. And so to help us better aware of the seriousness of this incident requires us firstly to examine the words found in verse 7, which says this, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down. Now the key word that I would like to draw your attention to is this word, kindled. What does it mean? Well, kindled simply means to be ignited or to stir up. And so this should cause us to next ponder, what was it that caused God's anger? What was it that caused God's anger to be ignited or to be stirred up? You know, I once recalled many years back when Evangeline was only four years old and she was all cranky and whining. And the reason simply was because like any four years old, she didn't want to take her afternoon nap. And so as a result, she totally refused to do what she was told and created quite a stress at home. And so out of frustration, I burst out in anger and reprimanded her for her bad behavior. Now, what caused me, a mild-mannered, fun-loving husband, wait, don't laugh, laugh, true what, <laughs> to suddenly explode in anger? Well, it was her persistent disobedience. Her disobedience kind of kindled me to just want to scold her and to be upset with her. Similarly, what can cause a driver on the road, minding your own business, to suddenly lose his cool and stir up in anger? A possible reason could be the inconsiderate or irresponsible driver, huh? yeah? who just cut into your lane without any indication. And in Usa's case, what caused God's anger to be provoked? What caused God's anger to be kindled <coughs> such that he had to struck down this unfortunate man? The clue is found when we examine the second part of verse 7, <coughs> which tells us that God struck him down there because of his error. Now, church, don't miss this. This error was no small matter at all. To us, it may be insignificant, but in the eyes of the Lord, this error committed was considered to be a rather serious offense. And what was the error? We are told that Uzzah touched the ark. Uzzah touched the ark. And for this very mistake, he paid for his life. Now perhaps some of you may be sitting here and say, well, what's the big deal about touching the ark? Well, <clears throat> to fully understand the error of Uzzah's action, I want us now to look at another portion of Scripture. And it's important that we understand this. And so let's turn to Exodus 25 and see why it is provided <clears throat> from us to touch the ark of the Lord. Exodus 25 and I'm going to read from verse 10 to verse 16. 
And this is the word of the Lord to Moses. He says, They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put the and you, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. <clears throat> Here we see the instructions that God gave to Moses regarding the construction of the ark. But the very first thing we need to be aware <clears throat> is that the ark of the covenant was no ordinary box. Because if you read Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, we are told that it is an object of holiness. Why? Because it bears the very presence of God. In fact, you find that so careful was God that He gave Moses specific details of this design. And as you have read from the, heard from the passage that I read to you, it was to be made of acacia wood, next slide, which is to be overlaid with pure gold. Its upper surface, which is the mercy seat, was surrounded with a rim of gold on each side of the ark were two gold rings. And it was for this purpose of inserting two gold-plated poles of which the ark was to be carried. Now, note that because it was an object of holiness, God also had to carefully explain to them how it was to be carried. Furthermore, you read in, in Numbers chapter 3, verse 4, you find that the instructions given that the only person to handle the ark were the Levites. And the way to carry it was by on their shoulders. So only the Levites, consecrated people, was allowed to carry the ark. And they were not to carry any old house. They were to carry it on their shoulders. Now, this instruction couldn't be more clearer because all the Jews were aware of this. So with this in mind, we now have a better understanding as to why Usa was struck down for touching the ark. And you see, when we compare this passage with 2 Samuel chapter 6, we see how the transport team they had violated God's commandment in two very specific ways. The first mistake they did was the way it was transported. <clears throat> Going back to 2 Samuel chapter 6, we read in verse 3 that David placed the ark on a wheeled carriage pulled by oxen. And as I already mentioned, this was totally the opposite instruction given by God. <clears throat> now, why did David did this? It was not explained in the text. Maybe it was an oversight on his part. 
Maybe he assumed that this was always done so by the people in this manner. Or maybe David, you know, thought that this was the best and fastest way to move the ark because, you know, he was all excited to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. But you see, whatever the case, don't miss this. Whatever the case, the ark was a holy item. But David and the team did not give proper respect in not following the correct way of carrying it. David, in fact, later admitted in 1 Chronicles 15 verse 2 that he should have known better, that he shouldn't have done what he did. But by then, the harm was already done. For along the way, we are told the cart stumbled and to, pre to prevent it from falling, <coughs> Uzzah instinctively touched the ark and was struck down dead for his error. So the second violation then was that Uzzah touched what was holy. Now again, it's important for us to be reminded that even the priests, the most considered to be the most purest man, they were prohibited from touching or risk-facing serious consequences. Hence, when, what happened when Uzzah touched the ark was simply this, an unclean hand touched the holy presence of God. What was unholy now came into contact with what is holy. And when that happens, there's only one obvious outcome. And for this simple and harmless act, God had to struck down Uzzah and died. But wait a minute. Again, I think some of you sitting down here, you can argue and say, but wait a minute. Can we really blame him for what he did? <clears throat> After all, you know, as we are told in verse 6, the, the ox stumbled. And if you think about it, this guy was just merely doing his job, you know, as a transport minister. I mean, you know, when our MRT breaks down, we expect our transport minister to go down and do something, right? So similarly, he was doing something. He was simply trying to prevent the ark from falling off the cart and being damaged. Why? Because the oxen stumbled. We may even argue that this is the natural thing for us to do. I mean, think about this. You know, for instance, if you were to go to a museum that displays rare and expensive vases from the Ming Dynasty, and you know, you accidentally somehow knock it, knock one of them down, what is your reaction? You don't let it just break on the floor, do you? You immediately try to grab hold of it. And that's what Usa did. And because of what he did, he was struck down. But again, the thing for us to remember is this. The ark wouldn't have slipped off in the very first place if it was transported in the correct manner. Isn't that true? If David had carried the ark the way that God had instructed and not by having it carried by oxen, there will be no oxen to stumble. There will be no Usa to touch the ark. So being clear of this, what application, what lesson then has this passage for you and I? There are many, but 
For this evening, I would just like to highlight for us three for our reflection and consideration. <clears throat> and the first lesson is this. It has to do with the question, why is God so cruel when something bad happens? Now, I want to suggest to you that this is actually a wrong question to ask. You see, in the light of God's holiness, the right question should be, God, why are you so merciful? You see, on many occasions as seen in Scriptures, wicked people deserve death, but somehow it didn't come about. And looking at our world today, what's happening? We see the lawlessness of the LGBTQ movement. We see the invasion of Ukraine by Russian forces. God seemed to remain silent. God seemed to not be doing anything about it. And in such situations, we really shouldn't be asking, God, why is this happening? Why are you so bad? Why are you allowing this thing to, to happen? Instead, we should be asking the question, Lord, why are you so patient? Why are you so merciful through all this sinful disobedience and defiance? And the answer is, of course, lies in the fact that our Lord is rich in love and mercy. As Peter writes in his letter in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, <coughs> he reminds us that the Lord is not slow about His promise as something of slowness, but He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but they all come to repentance. So why does God allow these bad things to happen? It's because He is merciful, He is patient, He is loving. God desires to present ample opportunity for the lost to choose what is right. And to use a phrase from Reinhard Bonke, God wants to plunder hell and to populate heaven. You see, just because he choose to remain silent doesn't mean that he's unaware of what's happening or that he condones such atrocious acts. He is still a holy God who demands judgment. And in his time, he does act to remind us of what sinful man deserves. And again, if you look at scriptures, you find God doing this. We read of how God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah for their gross sexual immorality. We see how God striking down two priests, Nadab and Ahibu, for offering him unauthorized fire. So God is a holy God. But yet, at the same time, He's patient, He's merciful, He's loving. The next lesson from this passage teaches us that we need to have the right view of our God. And again, it is vital that we don't miss this. You see, you and I, we need to be constantly reminded that our God is a holy God. Yes, though the penalty of Uzzah does seem to be harsh and severe, this is simply because God's holy character demands it. Now listen to the words in Leviticus 11 verse 44. God says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself therefore and be holy, for I am holy. God declares that He's a holy God and He expects you and I 
to be holy as well. And so if we disregard this crucial point that he's a holy God and begin to treat him as just a good friend, a buddy-buddy, you know, then I'm afraid. The sins that we have committed won't seem to be a big deal to us in any way. Because the moment we treat God as a friend, we find that our sins don't seem to be harsh at all. But if we change the view that God is a holy God and He demands us to live holy life, we begin to see that the sins that we commit are gross in His sight. And that should challenge us to change our ways. You know, it is just like coming into the presence of royalty. Yeah? Or if you don't meet someone important like the president of the nation. One does not approach in a casual manner or in, in a fashion that we wish to. There are certain protocols to observe and rules to follow. And similarly, we must discard and throw away any thoughts that we can approach His holy presence in a nonchalant way. Such thinking, such idea is wrong and it's dangerous. Why? Because we serve a God that is not only good and caring, but we serve a God who is holy as well. And a holy God demands judgment when sin abounds. And when God judges us, we must not get offended when He acts in judgment. You see, the problem here, as I mentioned, is that we are so used to God's mercy. And really the church perhaps have been guilty of this. The church in general has been guilty of preaching too much of God's grace and, and mercy. Not to say that it's not important. Yes, we should be doing this. But very often, you go to most churches, they'll tell you, oh, God, God loves you, God gives you grace, and so on. But nothing about God is holy, and He demands us to change our ways. And so when God acts in judgment, we get offended. We get upset. Why is God saying all these things to me? And this was precisely how David reacted when he news spread to him that Uzzah was struck down. Verse 8 tells us that he was offended and he even became angry with God. But then almost immediately, in verse 9, we find that David's anger turned into fear. For he suddenly, it suddenly dawned upon him that he actually provoked the wrath of God due to his careless ways. So indeed, how we understand the person and character of God as holy will affect every aspect of our lives. The way we relate to the Almighty has to do the way we perceive Him as a holy God. And to come into His holy presence requires us to come with this reverence and godly fear. If our worship of God is to be acceptable, there has to be this reverence and godly fear. But sadly, David and his people had failed to do this. They transported the ark of God on an ox cart. Instead, of consecrated Levites carrying it on their shoulders as the Lord had commanded. You see, it didn't matter that the time 
It didn't matter that at the time everyone was praising God with all their might. It didn't matter that they had the right idea of wanting to restore the ark back to Jerusalem. You see, when we forget that God is holy and our actions disregard His holiness, we put ourselves in grave danger. All that we do in the eyes of God, tapake. We mustn't blame God, therefore, when in our failing to do the right thing, His judgment falls on us. So this leads us then to the final lesson that I want to share with you this evening. And it is the right way to live our lives as disciples of Christ. What then is the right way to live? Peter, again referring to the Leviticus passage, writes to his readers, reminding them that since they are a chosen race, that since they are a royal priesthood, and like us, we are a holy nation, Peter tells his readers, he calls them towards a holy lifestyle. And then he further adds, he further lists down for them in case they don't know what it means to live a holy lifestyle. He, he adds in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. He tells them, this is what you need to do if you want to live a holy lifestyle. You have to put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. And this verse really covers every aspect of our human life, which include our conduct, our character, and our conversation. Are we living holy lives that are pleasing to God? The key here is making the effort to do so. It is painfully striving to rid ourselves of all that is impure and do what God wants us to do that gives Him pleasure. You see, my closing point is this. When God's holiness is not regarded, there'll be no growth, there'll be no blessings. If you desire your Christian life to be victorious, you must regard God's awesome holiness. If you want your family to flourish, you must regard God's awesome holiness. And when we do that, you find that we will enjoy His favor the very way Obed-Edom and his family were blessed. Because check this out. Check this interesting development in verse 11. <laughs> For we are told that the ark of the Lord, when the transport team carrying the ark God struck down Uzzah, everything was put on hold. And we are taught now that the ark of the Lord remained in the house of this man called Obed-Edom the Gittite. And it remained there for three months. And we are told that the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So may this last verse be real and happening to each and every one of our household. Not just for three months, but forevermore. And we can only receive this blessing of God when we regard the awesome holiness of God. You see, David, in conclusion, <coughs> David learned a harsh but vital lesson about God's holiness. He wanted to bring the ark back, which made him happy. But in doing so, he went about in the wrong way. He disregarded God's holiness, 
And he paid the price through the death of the man Uzzah. If we cannot comprehend His holiness, our sins will not be considered as a big deal. We will also have no fear of God's judgment. And what's worse, we begin to live the way we want to live. And this is exactly what Satan wants of us. Therefore, today, as we close, the challenge for you and I, the call for us is to live a life that is holy, a life that is set apart from the world. Holiness defines you and I as Christians because the God that we serve, the God that we worship, the God that we love is a holy God. And He calls us to be holy. So today as we close, as you reflect on your own lives, are we living in holiness before our Lord? Or are we simply just wanting to be happy, do our own things? Would you seriously consider, are you treating the things of God as ordinary? Just as the way David and the team treated the ark of the Lord as something that's ordinary. Are we treating our relationship with God as only a friend, but not as a holy God? Are we putting God first in our lives by remembering the Sabbath that God calls us to come to worship Him once a week to put aside our problems, to put aside our work, to put aside our family and come into the presence of the Lord to worship. Are we treating Him, giving Him the honour and the due respect? Are we regularly praying and reading the Bible as well as in obeying the Word of the Lord? It may go even one step further. That as we come to church, are we coming with the wrong attitude? Is God waiting for you or you wait for God? Which should be the way? Do we come in late? Or do we come in early to prepare ourselves? And again, I bring this up once again. And I'm not going to touch, not going to go into detail, but I bring this up again. Are we coming into the presence of the Lord on Sunday? Do we dress appropriately? Because if you see God as ordinary, fine. <laughs> That's your prerogative. You treat God that way. But if God is in this place and He's a holy God, we should give Him that due honour and that due respect. Do we worship the Lord being distracted by what's going on Check in our phones, checking our emails and what, and, and what other things? Are we having distracting thoughts? So as we close, May we not lack this reverence for God's holiness in our lives. And as we close, we're going to sing this song. It's a song. I'm told that you all don't know the song, though it's an old song. But nevertheless, it's good to learn this new song. It's a beautiful song. A song that challenges us to choose the fear of the Lord. To choose 
holiness. Let's stand as we sing the song. Father, as we end the service this evening, may our heart's desire be one to choose to fear you, be one to give honor, to give respect to your holiness. Father, as we dismiss from this place, we ask of you, Lord, may you continue to just build in us this truth that all that we do, we give glory to your name. And so as we depart from this place, we pray for your blessing to be upon us. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and remain with each and every one of us now and forevermore. Amen.